And yeah, we came out of the gate about a minute early. I was completely ready to go, and uh, people always kind of drift in after the housekeeping at the beginning anyway. So I figured, why not get off to a little bit quicker of a start today? It is, after all, Friday, guys. That means it's the end of the uh, work week for some of us anyway. I, I work pretty much seven days a week. I just don't work all day on the weekends. Anyway, we're going to talk about something today that I believe I actually came up with the terminology for Downward class migration. And I will say that if even if I didn't come up with the term or the phrase, the way I am explaining it and what I mean when I say it, I actually haven't heard anybody else explain it uh, this way. And it is something that can be a very complex economic formula driven, you know, ideology uh, or theory or form series of formulas or something like that. But I don't explain it that way. And, I, and when we get into it, I'm going to explain why I explain it differently. And it's mainly so that the average person can understand it. I think this might be one of the more important uh, podcasts I've done in recent times. This actually goes back. I originally, the first time I can find that I did a podcast dedicated to it was on October the 12th, 2011. And I might even bring up a screenshot of that for you. So it's it's obviously something that I've... I've talked about for a long time. I ran that show as a rewind back in 2016. So rewinds for those that are new to the show. That's just when I'm not around, I take old shows and put some new bumper on them, and then I rerun them. And this is definitely, I guess what you call an evergreen concept. You know, it's why I don't do a lot of shows that are like, let's talk about what's going on in Ukraine, and let's talk about what's going on here and there, and the, this person got elected, and this person didn't. And, you know, we talk about that at times because some of that stuff does affect us, and it's it's like talking about the fact there's a storm on the radar. You're not going to stop it, but it's good to know. But I try to make my catalog of work something that if you listen to it five years from now, you're like, oh, this is still valuable, or yeah, that guy was wrong but at least he admits it, or, oh, boy, he was really, really right, or he's right, but it changed now. And so most of the stuff I do is not anchored in what you're going to see on Fox News or CNBC or MSNBC. Again, we'll, we'll, we'll play homage to it once in a while, but in general, we're talking about things that are going to be ongoing. And I was between two shows today. I was going to do a show on this or a show on quail. And so I put up a poll on MeWe and Twitter. Twitter was pretty close. I think it was like a 55-45 split uh, going to this subject. MeWe was much more dominant. It was like 70-plus percent wanted this topic. The good news for you quail people, we will talk about quail on Monday. Anyway, um, before we go forward, just let me remind you, I will never contact you for any personal information in any private chat or messenger service or anything like that. Uh, there's constantly people making comments in YouTube saying that it's me, I'm on WhatsApp, and they're saying it's me and me, Jack. Even says, it's me, Jack, contact me on WhatsApp. I'll give you my secret tips. Or I don't do that. I don't do it on Instagram. I don't do it anywhere. I have to say this every episode because I don't want people to get hurt. If somebody tells you they're me, just assume they're not. 
if you don't have my phone number and we're not talking on a direct message or something like that where we've talked before and you know it's me, assume it's not. If you need to talk to me or confirm something with me, Jack at the survivalpodcast.com is my email. And if you don't get an answer from me there, I didn't have time to answer you, but I promise you if you're asking me about some sort of back channel com and if it was legit, I would confirm it. If I don't, it's not. Hate having to take time to say that all the time, but we do. Anyway, before we dig into today's topic, which again is downward class migration, and I think this is going to be one that you guys may want to share with friends and neighbors and things like that because it may help them understand what's going on, how long it's been going on, the fact that it's going to continue to go on, and even if they think this redneck hippie duck farmer has no credibility, if you go back and look at when I started talking about it and you look at what's happened since, maybe I get a little bit of street cred. I'm just saying. Anyway, before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsor of the day today. It is Paul Wheaton and Hermes.com. And Paul has a special offer for you guys today. I think you're going to really like this one. So you guys know Paul. Um, he's been around forever with the TSP community. I think the first time I interviewed him was in like episode three or 400 range. He's got a permaculture design course and an appropriate technology course. All the videos, it's over 177 hours. There's an article right up on this on the survivalpodcast.com today. There's a link in the show notes that are in this video. Uh, you can find it down there. Now, again, if you're watching it live, it won't be available until after the live video ends, about 30 to 40 minutes after this video ends today. I should have it up. But all these great instructors, and it's 177 hours. Let me pull it up where you would actually get you go to, to purchase it just so you can get a better understanding of who is involved in teaching this class. Uh, there's sample videos that you can go look at today if you want to get a better feel for what the instructors are like. Uh, there's different pricing options, but the uh, HD Instant View, you can get both the, the appropriate technology course and the full PDC. That's 100 hours of video. The, the technology course is 77 hours if you get it all for 65 bucks uh, on this special offer that I have for you guys. Instructors include Tim Baker, uh, Paul Wheaton himself, uh, Thomas Thomas Eppel, uh, Helen Othro. I mean, these are taught Erica Weisner. Uh, Erica Weisner and her husband, Ernie, are the ones that have done all the amazing work with rocket mass heating and thermal mass inside homes. Um Jacqueline Freeman, Zachary Weiss, you get the idea, David Hoyt. Uh, and these are courses that were filmed when they were done at Wheaton Labs. And you get everything, and I mean everything. And to, to buy the course, you need to be a member of the Permies Forum. And that means if you have questions, you can tie into the entire Permies community uh, and getting help with questions answered about any of this stuff. And, I mean, the, the whole, everything is listed here. Check it out. Uh, at survivalpodcast.com today. And uh, if you're on my daily mail, you'll get that. So make sure you're on the daily mail as well. Now, before we dig into this, I want to read a few boostergrams that came in yesterday uh, off yesterday's episode, the Expert Council Q&A show. And I want to do it not just because I like reading the boostergrams, because there is one in here that is perfect for today's show. So I'm going to skip that one when I get to it. Uh, Outdoor Idaho sent a 1,000 sats and says, this is the most powerful thing I've ever heard outside of my faith. I think he was talking about Galt's Gulch in plain sight yesterday. Uh, Wangineer says, uh, 500 sats, keep up the great work you do, Jack. 
500 sats from user 2257 or 22757. Logan Mars, 500 sats listening since around 2012. When I was a sophomore in high school, your show has kept me level-headed. Man, I'm glad you're still around, Logan. Thanks for doing that. Uh, Shex201, 500 sats, says, I'm doing a rain dance for you here in Kentucky. Keep up the awesome content, Jack. Uh, Geologist2, excellent show, Jack. Appreciate your thoughts on removing yourself from their system, 451 sats. That's all I'm going to read today. Like I said, if I read every boostergram that came in day by day, Half the show would be boostograms. Um, but thank you to all that send boostograms at stream sats, what have you. Uh, but Dubber, Dubberoff, I can never say his name. His name, his real name's Dan. I know this dude in real life, but this is, this is what he sent. And this is a perfect intro for today's show. And there's no way he could have known that synchronicity strikes again. Quote, the purpose of the system is what it does. End quote. Stanford beer. When someone complains about the continuous bad outcomes of a system, medical, judicial, uh, criminal, crime, crime, inter- crime interdiction, education, it is likely that the purpose of the system is what it does. It isn't a bug. It is a feature for whoever wrote the laws and the rules. I couldn't come up with a better way of explaining everything that we're about to talk about with downward class migration. I could. I couldn't do it. There's no way I could have done it better. There's no way that Dan did it on purpose because there's no way Dan knew what we we're going to talk about today because that boostergram came in well before I put out the poll. I didn't know what we were going to talk about today. But again, we're talking about a concept called downward class migration. And this is something that when you say it, people know or think they know what you're talking about. They don't. They don't know what I'm talking about. People think when you say downward class migration that we have, let's say, Christopher here hanging out, chatting with us, right? And Christopher, let's say Christopher is solidly in kind of the center of the upper middle class. He's making about 70 grand a year, but his wife has a good job making about 65. So together, they're at like a buck 30, buck 40. They got a couple kids. They live in a decent house. They bought it 10 years ago, so it doesn't really cost them that much relative to their income, and they're pretty happy. And what they think when you say downward class migration, they think what it means is Chris loses his job, his wife gets sick, something happens, and there's a crash in the real estate market at the same time. And even though they thought they had equity in the house, now they can't get it. They end up renting or living in some cracker box house. He ends up working at a, a hardware store for you know double minimum wage or something like that. And all of a sudden, he's in the lower middle class, and he has migrated down in class. That is absolutely not what I'm talking about. And if you come at this thinking that, you will never understand what I'm trying to convey to you today. What I'm talking about is the entire class structure. And if you go back to my video from 2012, linked in the show notes today, and you watch it, it's exactly how I explained it over 10 years ago. That the entire class structure slides behind you so that even if all that bad stuff doesn't happen to you, your quality of life declines. In other words, it's not a destruction of the middle class that everybody wants to call it. It is a reclassification of what middle class means, what it buys you to be middle class, how hard you have to work, how much time you have to put in, how much you have to save to stay just static, let alone slide along with it. Because you have to basically climb to stay level. Think of it like an escalator going down. And you have to, and it's a very slow escalator, 
But taking one step up is really hard. And, and if you don't move up, the system's moving you down over time. So that a person who has the same job their father did or mother did, that works just as hard, that is just as talented, and is just as valued by society and their employer, it's not some peon thing, has a lower life quality than their parent did. Not because they failed to achieve what their parent achieved, because they only achieved what their parent achieved. And I, I want to start out with why I, why I'm going to break it down to our needs and then quality, including some of those needs. So if you live in a house, that's one thing, but what kind of house, there's a quality factor there. And why I'm going to explain it with this instead of things like consumer price index and inflation and GDP and stuff like that. It's not because I can't. And in the next couple of minutes, you'll understand real clear if you've never heard me speak before. I absolutely can. But you'll also understand why it's all bullshit and why economists like to use this bullshit when they talk to you. When you listen to an economist and they say something like, and I'm not even talking about the BS right now, that we're not really in a recession, even though it meets the definition of a, success, a recession, but it's not, I'm not talking about doublespeak. When they say something like uh, inflation right now is X percent, doesn't even matter what the number is. And historically, we are two points higher than what is typical for inflation or three points higher. Or they say that the GDP declined by 1% this quarter. That's concerning, but we've had a lot of times when the GDP has declined by 1% in a quarter. It's typical. We often recover from it without having a second declining quarter of GDP. All of it can be true, and the output, the thing that you're left with an impression of, because this guy sounds smart, he uses big words, and he has MIT or Stanford in his, his description of his you know, education below him. He's a talking head on TV, and he's wearing a really expensive suit. He must No, it's all bullshit, even, though, even if it's true. Now, how is that the case? Because if you change the means by which the calculations are made across time, then a comparison of now to then becomes bullshit. So a, a simple place to understand this is GDP or gross domestic product. That's basically what is the sum total value of all goods and services that were put out this year in our society. So that's trucks and planes and it's, it's, it's financial analysis. It's anything that was billed for. Billed by one party, paid for by another party goes into GDP. Well, there was a pretty stable definition of GDP for decades. And then uh, I think it was about 10 years, about the time I did this video, they started including things in GDP that are not real at all. I mean, there was already some voodoo in there, but I mean, it's total bullshit. It was like if a pension fund has the value of the pension fund go up, but doesn't actually convert the security that they're holding nor pay the pension out, then the unrealized gain went to the GDP. And this is the multi-trillion dollar world we're talking about. We're talking about like every major public pension fund out there. If the security goes up, it goes to the GDP. But if the security value goes down and it's an unrealized loss, it doesn't go against it. So how do you compare the GDP in 2020 to the GDP in 1990, even at a relative percentile, not, not total dollars, but a relative percentile, when the means by which we've calculated has been completely and irrevocably altered. 
Now, that does, does that all sound like a bunch of complicated gobbledygook? It can sound that way, but it's not. It's exactly what's going on. And I could go through and I could break it down with CPI. I could go through and I could break it down with national debt. I could go through and break it down with unfunded liabilities. I could use all the big words these guys use. And you know what it's going to mean to you? It's going to make your freaking head hurt. You're not going to understand it. And somebody else using the same terms would be able to make me sound like I don't know what I'm talking about unless you understood everything I said. But here's what you do understand. What it costs you to live, how you want to live, and how hard you have to work to get what you want, and how hard you have to work to keep what you have, and looking at your children or your grandchildren and saying to yourself, can they get what I have and more? And how hard do they have to work for it? And how hard do they have to work to keep it? And how hard do I have to work to give them kind of that lift up in the beginning like my parents or grandparents did for me to get them there? Because what my grandparents and grandparents did for me was say, you got one thing, boy, you'd name, get out there and work and make it happen. That was it. I didn't get, you know, I didn't get even like a thousand, you know, something. I remember one of my buddies got like a thousand bucks when he graduated from high school. And I said, what's that for? He said, to get my life started. I didn't get that. But I didn't need it. I damn sure have lifted my kid up a little bit along the way because he started, he started at a, a disadvantage to me in many ways because of the landscape that he walked into. That sliding, that erosion of the backside. And I'll damn sure do it for my grandkids. They won't be trust fund babies, but if I can boost, but how hard this we understand. And this, again, this is 2011 is the first show I can find where I dedicated it to it. I think it really goes back to 2010. So you're talking 10, 12 years here that I've been explaining it this way. When I decided to, to really attempt to explain this to people who have been lied to their entire lives with fancy words, like consumer price index and relative inflation versus absolute inflation and all this other bullshit that these talking heads spew, I said, well, let's break it down to what everybody in my audience understands. Six basic survival needs. So there's, there's five they teach you in wilderness training. Food, water, fire, which we're going to change to energy, shelter, and security. And then in the real world, where we're not just trying to survive until somebody finds us, and we can't just crap in a hole and crap in another hole and crap in another hole and it'll be fine because we're alone by ourselves in the wilderness, we have health and sanitation. Those are six core fundamental human needs. We need those. And there is a baseline cost to the baseline of those needs. And there's a big difference between the baseline and the quality that we want. You can live for a time on Twinkies, Ho-Hos, stovetop stuffing, the cheapest chicken you can get. Let's not even let the Twinkies and Ho-Hos out. I, honest to God, when I first moved to Texas, this was a big part of what I lived on. Stuffing, I didn't even do stovetop because it's cheaper to buy the big bags like you buy at Thanksgiving. So stuffing, ramen noodles, Taco Bell's value menu, Jack in the Box's value menu, whole chickens, and ground beef, and rice. That was a huge, and maybe some vegetables here and there. I didn't have a garden. I lived in a little apartment that I shared with a friend. So my housing was base level too. But I had that base level met. I worked, when I first moved down here, I got a job in a warehouse. I made $7.50 an hour packing boxes in a warehouse, killing myself. 
but I got my base needs. I even could go out to a bar once in a while, but I had to check the money before I went. But I had the baseline of one of the things we'll get to next, which is entertainment. So I had shelter. I had energy. I paid my half of the electric bill. But we had to think about what the temperature of the thermostat was. It's a baseline. I didn't really need air conditioning. In Texas, you kind of did, but, you know, we had it. I had water because we paid a water bill, a baseline. And that is the base that we need, but there's a cost to that. You don't live for free. Even if you're on government-supplied subsidies, somebody paid for it, and there's a base cost. And if that cost goes up and income doesn't, the cost to just keep your head above water and shred water goes up, so the amount of energy expended to, to stay there goes up. And again, even if somebody else is paying the bill, it goes up for somebody. The other side, and this is the more important side for people who really understand it, because in our society, almost no one by full choice goes without the six basic needs. Even the homeless tend to only go without shelter, and they generally are doing that by choice. And it's usually a choice of they just want to live the way that they're living or they have a drug problem, an alcohol problem or something like that, and they're unwilling to give it up, so they're unable to obtain shelter from programs that are available to them. But the poorest people, and I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's true. The poorest people in the United States and most of the rest of the world live better than some what you would consider middle class in many parts of the undeveloped world. I've lived there and I've seen it. So now we move into our lifestyle quotient. This is another term that I think I came up with. Again, if I didn't, I didn't, but this is how I explain this. There are certain things that some are within our needs and some are outside of our needs, right? That basic six needs. But what we're seeking in it and how much of it we can obtain for ourselves directly impacts our quality of life. You can say, well, you could be happy with nothing, then go be happy with nothing. In general, this is how people measure the quality of their life. And I'm all about finding ways to be happy with less. That's part of the solution here. But there's some fundamental realities. If you live in an apartment that stinks, then no matter what you do to try to make it better, you're limited with what you can do. And when you walk out your door and down the hallway to get out of the apartment building, there's cockroaches in the in the the hallway, your quality of life sucks. And there's a lot of people in this country that are, you know, you call working poor, that they live like that and or worse. So there's a quality when it comes to housing. But we generally measure part of our lifestyle quotient, like how happy are we, how good is our life, how good do we feel about our life, by the quality of our house. And we measure that from things like, well, how big is our house? Everybody says they want to live tiny and put their little heart hands on Instagram or whatever, and most of those people end up getting rid of that thing, just to be honest with you. There's been a lot of follow-up on a lot of these people that are like, it's so wonderful. And then you find out, like, well, we lived in there six months, and that sucked. So now we have, you know, and maybe they have a smaller home than is typical, but size is one thing. Is it big enough to live comfortably? doesn't mean giant. We look at the condition of a house and the location of a house. You know, location, location, location. Well, location is more than just trendy stores and shopping and cool restaurants and whatever. Like for me, quality of life is being able to live on the urban rural fringe. This is subjective. There are people that would never want to live where I live. They would never, and there's people that would love to live where I would, 
where I live. So it's subjective, but is it what you want? But there are certain things we tend to agree on. Is the location safe? I'm not worried that I'm going to get robbed walking out in my backyard by a gang of thugs. So if I have to really make decisions based on how much I can afford with housing, I might have to live in a place that's not as safe. It might be further away from people that I want to be around. Maybe my friends are doing better than me. So there's a quality aspect to housing, and that's part of our lifestyle quotient. What kind of house can I afford and where? Next, our education. Education is a huge impact on our quality of life. And, yes, we can gain a lot of education from things like podcasts, YouTube videos, online universities, etc. Courses like Paul. I just gave you a great course deal, 65 bucks, right? The value or the cost of education has gone down in some ways, but it's gone very much up in other ways. And there's also the fact that while our community is huge on homeschooling, a lot of people aren't or they don't feel yet that they can. And there's a huge difference in quality of education for schools. And I'm just talking public K through 12. Honest to God, if my grandchildren lived with us and they had to go to public school, it would have been hard for me to choose this house Because even though it's a great place for me to live, the school they would go to is not that great. It really isn't. The school that they would go to if they didn't homeschool where their parents live, and they live in a place I don't want to live, is a much better school. I would say as far as public schools go, it is a top quality public school. And I'm not talking test scores, though they're good at that. I'm talking like quality for the kids. Like kids are not getting beat up. Kids are not getting stabbed. There's not drugs in all the schools. They're well run. The kids get a lot more recess time than they do in schools typically in the rest of the state. So their parents made that decision to some degree based on the schools. Then when we look at higher education, if you do want to take a degree path because you have a legitimate reason, what's the cost of that? And the quality of life you have from that point on is anchored in that cost. So it's a huge part of lifestyle quotient, and we all know what's happened. The cost of that has continued to go up while the value of a degree has gone down. And no matter what anybody wants to say about every kid going to college, etc., it's bullshit. That's the fundamental reality. The cost to get a four-year degree has gone up. The value of a four-year degree in my adult life has gone down exponentially by half. I would say a kid out of college two years of experience in the relative field. So not somebody with a degree in bitterness studies or what did Billy Bond call a degree in worthlessness or whatever, um, degree in gender studies. Kids got a solid degree, business, business degree. And two years of working for a decent-sized company looking for his next job. That was kind of his getting his feet wet job. 30 years ago, that kid was well ahead of the same kid today with much less debt even relative to the value of the dollar and inflation adjusted. So that has gone down. Vehicles. I drive a nice car. I don't apologize for it. It's a really cool sports car. It's a Dodge Challenger 2020, the, the particular one I have. I think they only made like 800 of them. And I was able to buy that as an older person who has saved my whole life and was able to take advantage of a, a drop in market prices. But I wouldn't buy that car at full price. I, and, and is there a quality of life factor there? Yeah, when I drop the hammer on that thing and it takes off, Yeah, there's a quality of life there. But there's also a quality of life in the fact that my wife has a brand new vehicle at all times. We do lease on high high resale value vehicles. We make really good deals when we get them, but we can. 
And the quality of life there is I don't worry when she has my grandkids and goes into town or something to do something for their homeschool, takes them to the museum or whatever, that they're going to be on the side of the road broken down. There's a quality issue there. So quality of cars is dependability, reliability, how many miles are on it. I don't care how good it is. The more miles, the less reliable it becomes across time. What is the cost of maintenance, et cetera? Cars are better today than they were in the 1980s. Period. End of story. Done. Over the last 20 years, they haven't gotten that much better. They really haven't, and they're exponentially more expensive. And we're going to get to something that changes the entire quotient of all of this as the last one. Next would be things like food. Food is a, an essential, but what's the quality of your food? Remember what I said when I was a young guy just starting out, what I lived on? And I really did, man. If it wasn't for value menus and knowing how to take, like, to, even back then I knew what to do with a whole chicken. That was a skill. That was one of the lift-ups that my parents and grandparents gave me was how to cook, right? I could take ground beef, beans, rice, some some peppers. I could make 20 different things, chicken. I mean, I, I, I did okay, but it's nowhere near the quality that I eat today. You know, today I'm eating grass-fed beef. I work hard so that I can eat grass-fed beef. Do you, do you see how um, how that works? you see how that works? And this is something that's hitting people really hard right now because they're, they're making decisions about what they feed their family, and they're not necessarily feeding lower-quality food because they want to, and they're not people just starting out, but the cost of food has gone up so much. So this still continues to be a problem, and it still continues to exponentially go up in cost. And one of the little funny things that we were talking about at the beginning that they did was they changed what they based the inflation rate of food on. For instance, it used to be like in the 70s, you were comparing steak to steak, and now we're comparing what steak used to cost to what ground beef costs today and the shittiest ground beef at that. So there's no doubt that we can eat higher quality food if we have more money. And, and this is like the quality, the desirability, the service. You know, I took my grandson out and let him buy quail yesterday at, at Gloria's Latin Cuisine. It was, a, you know, it was, the only thing is when he said, I know what I mean. I said, did you ask your grandmother, like, we we're going to have manners? But I wasn't going to say no. But I'll tell you what, not that many years ago, I would have had to say, no, buddy, I don't think so. I don't even think we would have been in that restaurant. We might have been at the value menu at McDonald's. He wasn't around yet, but it would, you know, my son, I remember as a young, a young guy starting out, when Dorothy and I first got together, worrying about was there going to be enough beef to go with the hamburger helper to put on the table that everybody would get a good meal. It's not that long ago. We're going back to like the 90s. And more and more people that have been past that point are going back to it. That's the sliding on the backside. If you know, if you've experienced any of this or you experience it, like it's not me, but I'm seeing it happen to my kids, you know what I'm talking about. And it, the, all of these things that we're talking about, the differential here, they used to be for a time that everybody lived that way. You're just broke when you start. That's just part of it. And it's, I think it's good that you're broke when you start. But it's you start to wonder like you're are you an, are you climbing a mountain that's it's hard but you're climbing and you're a little higher every day and all of a sudden you look down and you go wow this is pretty cool or are you an ant in an ant lion uh, trap 
where you think you're working your ass off, but all you're doing is kicking sand and that antlion is just knocking you down until you fall down the hall. That's the, that's what downward class migration is on the backside. Then we have entertainment. How often can you enjoy things, go out and have leisure, whether it's go taking a movie or whatever it is that does it for you, take a walk. A lot of times entertainment isn't that the entertainment has a direct expense, but what do you have to do to be able to have entertainment time? You have to stop working. You have to make sure everybody's fed, everybody's clothed, everybody's work's done. And then we can stop and pause and go have entertainment time. So there's a direct cost and an indirect, I need the time for leisure. And so frequency access, et cetera. And then you have the, the key, the key pin to all of this, whether it's direct or indirect credit access. What is the cost of borrowing and can you, and what, what amount can you borrow? Now you guys know, I think debt is cancer. If you're talking about credit cards and you're going out and buying your groceries with a credit card or you're buying short-term depreciating assets with any form of credit. I oppose this. I do not oppose buying a house with a mortgage. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think most people wouldn't be able to afford a house without a mortgage. But let's put some perspective on this about the fake housing boom that we've had for 25, 30 years. In the late 1990s, I bought my first house that I've ever owned. That house was a three-bedroom, two-bath, two-story in Arlington, not quite a postage stamp lot. It was like two postage stamps. I, I remember very, because it was a big deal, how much I paid for it. I paid $84,250 for it. I went and I did a standard 3% down FHA loan. And my payment on that house was only about $200 less than the payment that a house that I have right now. So actually things got better, but it was artificial, and that's what we're about to pay for. What do I have now? I have a 2,500-square-foot house on three acres. I have two great big metal buildings. The buildings alone are probably worth more than the house that I bought in the 90s, even inflation-adjusted. Those buildings back then probably were worth almost as much about that house. If you said, I just need to put them in, pour the slabs, put the buildings in, all of that. Um, here comes the plane strafing us again. This sounds like a good thing, but it's because we, we bucked one piece of this. We created an artificially cheap cost of housing if you could qualify for a mortgage. Why is this the case? So I paid about 200, I think I paid 210 for this house. I paid less than half and yet my payment wasn't that much different. And my, my taxes are higher here than they were then back there. Well, the reason is that the interest rate that I had on this house was something stupid like 2.4%. And the interest rate that I got back then was close to seven. Now, it wasn't because I, now I didn't get the best interest rate you could possibly get then because I was just starting and I didn't have that great a credit or anything, but I had okay credit and maybe I was paying a half a point more than the average person, you know, down the road for me that was 10 years older and had a little bit more of a track record. So it was interest rates. So what's happening right now? Interest rates are going up. People are freaking out about it and you have mortgage interest rates in the four percentile. That is historically low as shit. So what happens 
If those interest rates keep going up to the access to credit on the single most important thing that people buy today, which is their housing, and it's like the fundamental thing that builds the foundation underneath them, if they buy it right and they don't create a liability for themselves for the rest of their lives, it's going to lower that quotient, isn't it, that lifestyle quotient? So... Now we need, now that we've understood the, the needs and the things that affect our lifestyle, the quality of life, we need to actually define some things that people really don't understand when they use the word middle class or elite or wealthy or affluent. The elite, this is not across the total global population. This is in developed countries, these percentiles, and specifically the United States. The elite make up about 0.9%. Less than 1% of everybody. The elite are people that measure their wealth in hundreds of millions and up. Not millions, hundreds of millions. They're, they're quarter billionaire plus. That's the true elite. These are people that, you know, if you're worth a hundred million dollars right now, and it's not leveraged into something that could collapse, you just, you have a net liquid worth of a hundred million dollars. You can't spend all your money unless you're really stupid about it. You can live an incredible life and you will never run out of money and your kids will never run out of money. To me, that's elite. That's worth a hundred million up. The wealthy, and that's anywhere from some of the guys worth 25, 30 million bucks to a guy with a net worth of about a million dollars. If you have a net worth of a million dollars today, you're wealthy-ish. See, that's the thing. When I did this originally, I put this formula together back in 2012, 2011. I would say a million dollars, you were wealthy. I'm not even so sure you still qualify with a net wealth of a million dollars, and I'm not talking about the value of real estate if it's your primary residence. I'm talking about a liquid net worth of one million bucks. You have a you can come up with a million dollars of capital, and you don't have to leave your house. Okay, I still think you're close, but it's somewhere in that range. The upper middle class makes up about forty percent. The lower middle class makes up about 42%. And even a significant number of those people that we call wealthy are really just upper middle class. And all in, about 88% of people in America are somewhere in the middle class. And about 12% are poor, truly poor, impoverished. Guess what? It's always been that way. It always will be that way. You're not going to shrink the middle class. You're going to shrink what it means to be middle class. That's downward class migration. This is a developed country. It's going to remain a developed country. No, all the Internet's not going to go down. All the power grids aren't going to go off. There'll be outages and stuff like that. But it's not like we're not going to have the apocalypse. We're not going to have these, like, your, your whatever your favorite por prepper porn TV series or book is, lights out, et cetera. No. Life will basically go on. And there's a problem when I talk that way. There's so many people that think that that means I'm saying that everything is going to be okay. That does not mean everything is going to be okay. There's a big difference in working hard your whole life to a point where you would have been an upper middle class citizen if you were your grandfather. 
and being solidly in the center of the lower middle class. There's a huge difference in that. The difference, though, or the reason that they can get away with this, and it, they are doing this, because what did I read to you from that boostogram? If you're looking at a system and you're unhappy with the results from that system, it's it's doing it because it's what the system does, and the people that designed it know that. And that's my big difference between now and when I came up with this originally. I was willing to put a significant piece of this due to incompetence and having a bad system that people were working within the bad system that they had. At this point, I'm willing to attribute maybe 1% to 5% to incompetence and the rest to malice. Because this system, as bad as it is for you and me, for those people, those elite, that 0.9%, it's incredibly profitable, and their power continues to grow within it. And their goal is to extract as much from you and I as they can without turning it into a peasant's revolt. To boil Now, the boiling frog analogy, I hate using it here. It's the best one I have. It's fake. It doesn't work that way. If you start turning the water up on a frog, it will try to get out of the pot. Reptiles thermoregulate, amphibians thermoregulate. It's a myth. But it's a good analogy anyway. If you can slowly increase the misery of the middle class, they'll accept it. And they'll blame somebody else. The Democrats blame Republicans. The Republicans blame Democrats. And everybody thinks if we just get our guys in, it'll be okay. And even when we get our guys in, well, our guys, we didn't get enough of them in for long enough. We need to give them another crack. It's better than these other guys. These other guys are worse. It's all bullshit. It's all a show. And what, here's what's been going on. In, in the last 10, 12 years since I first brought this to you guys, number one, and this was already happening, it's just continued. Wages have failed to keep place with inflation. Way back in that video, you can go watch it. Ten-year-old video. It'll be ten years old, what, in a month. I said, and this was true, at the time that I'm talking about, the mid-90s when I bought that first house, I had the same job my dad did in his early 20s. I was a construction superintendent. My dad was a construction superintendent. My dad worked an average of 60 to 70 hours a week. I worked an average of 60, 70 hours a week. My boss loved me. The company loved me. I actually had a piece of ownership in the company at this point already. In the end, I made about the same money my dad did, not inflation adjusted. My dad had that income in 1968. 30 years later, 1998, I have the same income for the same job. Now, he was, he, he was working in a Northeast in a union environment back then. And I was working in a right to work state in Texas with a much more lower labor market. But it wouldn't have mattered if I moved. Like even if I had that job up there, I would have never made a, a salary equivalent to what he was making. When I did the math, I figured out that my father in the late sixties was earning about what a general practitioner doctor earned. Now that doctor had a better lifestyle quotient. They had more time for freedom and liberty and entertainment, right? And they had, they had more access to credit and things like that. And they didn't work 70 hours. Not a surgeon or whatever, an intern, yeah. But like a guy that was actually done with all that crap that just saw patients five, and he, he had banker hours. But my father, just by working harder and longer, blood, sweat, and tears, sweat, equity, no real education, not even a high school degree, was able to match his earnings. There was no way in the 1990s that at that age, in that position, I could have matched that. That's an extreme example, but it's only continued. 
I watch now my son being further than I was at that time, not not equivalent age, but at that time, doesn't really make much more money than I did further along. Struggles, not badly, but struggles to provide a home and all the things his wife and two kids want. Harder than I did. Because wages haven't kept up with the cost on, on the cost side. Next, interest rates have been artificially low. This is, this is what I said. Like we had this artificial boom for 25 years. This idea that it actually makes sense that you could loan money and that money at capital is tied up for 30 years with risk of default. For 3% or less interest, would you, in, just ask yourself, would you invest your money that way? If somebody came to you, your best friend, your, your uncle, your college former, your dad's former college roommate, whatever, and said, here's, here's my deal for you, Pine 01, right? Here's Pine 01 hanging out in the live chat. Pine 01, I want to know, would you do this? I, I need $300,000. I will pay you back every month for the next 30 years, and your analyzed rate of return will be 2.7%. Would you loan me the 300 grand if you had it under those terms? And the answer is absolutely not. The cost of capital is much higher than that. This was only able to be done by artificially dicking around with the in interest rates, by the ability of the banks to, to loan money without actually loaning it, to never actually have the money to be able to do it. You created the money by assuming the loan. And then the dominance of the dollar, the petrodollar across the world, basically setting rates artificially through all markets globally, was able to suppress this for this long. And it eventually resulted in, well, gee, the price of real estate has gone through the roof. Because what happens? Just this is instead of using complex terminology, just think about it this way. You're going to go buy a house. You can afford a total payment of $1,300. This is not subjective. You've done the math. You and your wife or your husband, you sat down, you did the math, and you said, this is it. This is what we got. This is what we're buying. We have a $1,300 payment. Here's our down. And that's it. I can't do 14. Can do 12. Can't do 14. 13 is my cap. And the bank says, well, here's how much you can borrow. And you can borrow... I don't know, $150,000 with a five and a quarter percent interest rate. And when you start looking for houses, your real estate agent calls you and goes, I got great news. What? You just slash the rates. The rates just went down to 3%. And you say, well, I don't, I don't know what that means. And your real estate agent said, well, I got with the mortgage broker. You can now buy a $200,000 house. What are you going to do? You're going to go buy a $200,000 house. So what's going to happen is the guy that was selling his house for 175 that you couldn't afford, he's not stupid. His real estate agent goes, hey, the real estate market is heating up. And he raises his price to 199.5. And then if this happens consistently over a decade or more, what happens to the value of housing? It becomes artificially inflated because people aren't paying $300,000 for a house. They're paying $1,250 a month. They don't care what the price of the house is because they're economically illiterate because our education system has made them economically illiterate. So what happens when reality checks in the door and goes, ding, ding, ding? That can no longer be the cost of capital. The Fed Reserve says 
Uh, We're supposed to keep inflation reined in, and we just had eight and a quarter percent inflation. That's crippling. That's heading toward a depression if we don't cut it off. So they have to start raising rates. So the access to credit goes down. And what happens is if you bought your house recently when that happens, you are effed in the A if you lose a job, you lose an income stream. If you can ride through it, okay. But if you need to exit that property, now you, the market crashes underneath you. And this is exactly what happened in 2008. So when I started the show in 2008 and said, hey, everything's about to get really bad. All I did was look at that. And I'm seeing it again and it's worse. And the problem you think is, well, great, now will be the time to buy. If you can get access to credit at the right interest rate, and if you're not trapped in some other debt, because if you need to exit a house when the market crashes. And what happened in 08 was unique. It was highly regional. Coastal properties in Florida, certain parts of Arizona, all of the West Coast and the Northeast were stupid inflated, and those people were effed. Places like Central Texas, Central Florida, the Southeast, the general Southeast, it didn't hit us hard. We were still able to move with impunity. And if you lived in one of those other places and you'd bought a long time ago, even with the crash, you could do geographic arbitrage. That ain't happening this time. The price of property went up everywhere. Rural markets, central tax, every place is artificially inflated. It's a trap. And it's all coming to fruition right now. And this is going to have a dramatic impact on the lives of the current new generation. Those guys starting out like I was in the 90s for decades. Even after it's fixed, it's still going to have hit them hard. Next, YOLO has been the creed of society since Reagan's 80s. You only live once. I remember the 1970s, barely, I was a really young kid, but I remember the frugality of people, the tight-fisted nature of people. Everybody thought the guy that came with the pet rock was a genius because he made a million dollars on rocks for a dollar apiece. And people were like, wow, I want to do that someday. By the mid-1980s, when I was in grade school and middle school and high school, people were like, screw it. Screw it. People were buying fake cell phones just so they could look like a baller. Remember that? Remember the brick cell phones? Most people will remember that. If you're younger, you might remember pictures of people with a great big giant phone or the bag phone in a car. What you may not know is by the mid-late 80s, there were companies who were selling a plastic cell phone for like 25 bucks. The thing costs like a dollar to make in China, even to deliver it to the United States. And they were selling them for 25 bucks, and people were driving around pretending they had a cell phone. So they look like they were rich, even though we're driving like a 10-year-old jalopy car. They're driving a 77 freaking, uh, what the hell was that? I'm trying to get the shittiest car ever. It was a Slant 6. It was made by Pontiac. Uh, some with a V. It was just a piece of, like, I was driving around in a, in a, in a freaking LTD, a 1976 LTD, you know, would, would rust it out, but he's got a fake cell phone like he's a baller and, a, and some Krager rims on it to make it look like he's got a nice car. Like, that mindset is still with us. People like, I remember in the 90s, one of my best friends, a guy named Brian, was like, well, if you don't owe anybody anything, you're nobody in America, right? Like, this, we have been living with this, with this artificially suppressed cost of housing, which artificially inflated the, the actual cost. So we artificially deflated the, the, the monthly cost of servicing the debt, 
while artificially rating, raising the underlying value of the real estate. That's a problem. And YOLO didn't help. Our dependence on offshore manufacturing materials has grown constantly. I was saying this, you know, just this week. China's not going to launch missiles at Taiwan. If China wants to go to war with the United States, it'll be an economic war. They'll turn off all our antibiotics, all of our pain medications, all of our maintenance medications. They can do that like that fast. We haven't learned. Even if we're going to import that shit, don't you think we should have like 30 or 40 countries we're importing it from? So if we lose one, all our eggs aren't in one basket. How much we rely on China for is unbelievable and even all these other offshore markets. And we've created an artificial labor shortage by devaluing hard work in this country. We've created a society of educated idiots. These people running around with degrees, they can't do anything, but actual hard work is beneath them, so they won't take a job doing it. So even if we try to bring that manufacturing back, we can't. We are an export economy and exportation. I'm sorry, we're an import economy. If you are importing goods and services, what are you exporting? Wealth. That's, that's what it means. If you are an import economy for your, your, your product and service sector, then you are an exportation of your wealth economy. Your money is experiencing massive economic entropy out to the developing world, which is developing at our expense. By design, because whatever you see the system doing is what the system was designed to do. Because all these assholes are invested here and there both. Right? That's why Jim Rogers has made sure his kids speak Mandarin. You don't have that luxury. You are part of this sliding class structure. And the next thing that's happened, in addition to those educated idiots, many of those educated idiots now are administrators. They're useless. They're not necessary, but they're artificially necessary. Go look at a chart. I, I encourage you to go and look up a chart of the growth of doctors and administrators in the healthcare system since the 1960s. And in the 1960s, there was like one administrator for every four or five medical professionals, doctors and like registered nurses. Today, there's like 10 administrators for every medical professional. There's been an inversion of that. What do these people do? They keep people from getting sued and they process billing. That's it. They're not necessary to provide health care, except we've made them necessary. So we have a whole bunch of people doing something that really isn't necessary that artificially increases the cost of health care. And so those people aren't doing other things like, I don't know, making and building stuff. And they have a degree that says they're qualified to do a thing that anybody could learn to do in about a week. Don't think any of this stuff is that hard to do. Don't believe that caring and human resources really works that hard. Don't think that the company couldn't run without caring and human resources. Don't think your school system couldn't run without all the administrators there pushing paper around for the purpose of pushing paper around. We have a massive set. I would say 25 to 30% of people in our society today, if we removed the artificial need for their jobs, and we and, and after we removed the artificial need for their job, we then just took them out of the workforce, nothing bad would happen. And we've been running that way for at least 30 to 40 years. And it really started from the 60s, going through the 70s, and then from the 80s on. So 40 years in, in, in just high-speed, full, low-drag mode. Next, regulatory capture has killed us, too. 
We have created government monopolies artificially increasing the cost of things like health care, drugs, etc. Regulatory capture came from something that sounded good, but trust me, the people that designed it knew what they were doing. Like, we're going to have this thing called the FDA, Food and Drug Administration. We're going to make sure that people aren't being given bad food or bad medicine. That can't be a bad thing. I know bad medicine was a good song that Bon Jovi put out in the 80s, but you don't really want bad medicine. That's got to be okay. Well, how are we going to pay for it? I got an idea. Those guys that make the drugs and make the food, let's make them pay for it. What? What do you mean? We'll have fees. So they'll have to pay us to, to regulate them. That's smart. It doesn't cost the consumer directly at all then, does it? Because we're economically illiterate. We believe that bullshit. Any cost costs the consumer. But it sounds good. So what do you mean? Like Pfizer will pay the government to oversee Pfizer? Yeah. That sounds like a good idea. Let's. How do we sell it to the people? To get Reagan's guys around, they're like, I know, I know. Deregulation. We'll call it deregulation. All right, let's do that. Well, shit, it works everywhere. So anywhere we need to regulate big business, we'll make big business pay for their own regulation. What do you think happens after a few decades of doing that? What does a bureaucracy do by its very nature? It grows. If I get a job in the private sector, my job is to do as much as I can with as little as possible. And the more I do that, the more I'll get paid, the more I'll get rewarded. And if the company doesn't reward me, I go to another company that will. If I can go into a company and they're like, we're going to give you a staff of five and we want you to do $2 million worth of business. And two years later, I have a staff of four and I'm doing $5 million worth of business. They love me. They love me. They're buying shit for my kid's birthday. Right? If I'm in a bureaucracy, the money doesn't matter. The only way I advance in a bureaucracy is I have more people under me before. So I have to grow the entire thing like an organism. So the organism that is the regulatory body gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger over time. Yeah. This is like, we don't need complex terms for this, do we? This is easy to understand. So you end up with something that was relatively small in the beginning, like, like Mr. Fauci runs, right? NIH becoming a massive, huge organization with incredible power, controlling billions of dollars in research all over the place. But where does their money come from? It comes from the people that they regulate. So who's in charge? Is this even hard to understand once you break it down to simplistics? Who's in charge when one hand gives money to the other? The hand that does the giving is held higher, so it's in charge. So regulatory capture is we have this seemingly interesting idea. The people being regulated will pay for their own regulation. But over time, the bureaucracy becomes dependent on the actual customer, which is not the taxpayer. It's the regulated entity that's paying for its own regulation. So who's in charge? Pfizer's in charge of the FDA, NIH, right? Merck, etc. Who's in charge of the EPA? Monsanto, Bayer, Conagra, right? The chemical agricultural companies are in charge. This is, this is not hard. This is not hard. This is the only thing that can happen. So what does that do? You think you have competition. You think you have capitalism. But you have a relatively small number of mega corporations that have complete dominance over a sector. And they have complete control over regulations, so they write regulations, both the bureaucratic methodology of using the regulations and through the legislature, through lobbying, 
You think your congressman ever wrote a bill in his life or her life? They don't write legislation. They say, my bill does this. My They don't have a bill. Your bill would mean you wrote it, you lying cockroaches. You lying cockroaches. They are. I used to call them ass clowns. They're so much worse than freaking ass clowns. They're cockroaches. They live off the crumbs that they're fed by these entities. When somebody says, my bill protects agriculture, freaking Purdue wrote that bill. Tyson wrote that bill. Monsanto wrote that bill. That asshole didn't write that bill, and you know he didn't write that bill. That bill's 1,100 pages. The person that's a congressman has never put enough work in, in their existence as a congressman to write one 1,100-page bill. That bill was written by 37 lawyers on Monsanto's payroll. That's who wrote that bill, and you know they did. And they control everything. So when somebody comes in and wants to compete with them, and they're like, oh, we don't want these regulations. No, no. It's like like T-Rex arms when the guy says he wants to get the check, but he can't seem to reach it. Like It's like paper, like they're fighting a paper. Th- oh, no, don't regulate us. No. Oh, no. That's all it is. It's bullshit. They wrote the regulations. Those regulations keep other people out. What do you have when you have a monopoly? Artificially high prices in every major sector of society that society depends on for food, water, shelter, energy, right? They, they regulate out their competition to regulatory capture, and it hurts you. And it doesn't just hurt you in choice or quality. It hurts you in cost. You're going to pay more to have less choice and lower quality because that's what monopolies do. And those of you like, well, government, we'd have a monopoly. There's never been a monopoly in history that was not enabled by government. Even the big monopolists of the late 1800s, you know, the railroad monopoly, where'd they get the money to build the railroad from? Standard oil, where'd they get the money to do the oil exploration? Where'd they get the land? Give me this shit. This is, this is the result of 150 years of teaching people the exact opposite of what's going on and making them feel like they're smart because they know big words. You, you need a guy like me to explain this. It's not hard. It's just they've been lied to. Then you get supply squeeze, money printing, and economic ignorance. And an artificially elevated supply and demand curve that makes the inflation worse. That's what you just had for two years, and you continue to see the fallout of it. We'll print a bunch of money and pay people not to work. That'll reduce the amount of goods and services, and we'll give people this money who are economically illiterate and don't understand the consequences of the money. Because if you understood the consequences of the money, you still have it or you bought something that went up in value with it. And most people didn't. They pissed it away. They're like, shit, I can order DoorDash all month. This pandemic rocks. Let's get, let's get Netflix and Hulu premium. This will be fun. I don't have to go to work. On top of it, now we have deflation coming at the same time and more accurately, disinflation, and we're going to think we have deflation or reduced pricing, and all we have is some correction to the inflation. So let's make it really simple. Let's do the math here. Let's just round numbers so it's not hard to think. Imagine you just had 10% inflation, and then prices go down by 5%. Where are you at? You want to say 5%. You're not. You're about 7.5% inflation still from where you started. Because it's 5% of a bigger number. <laughs> and it, it, this is what happens. Like this, this constant shell game. 
That's another – you want to listen to an old show, look up Economic Shell Game at the Survival Podcast. Listen to the shows I did back then. That was like in the 200s or something. The Economic Shell Game, Federal Reserve Shell Game. That's all this is. They just – they you keep using this art. And remember what we said. If you if, While you're changing the, 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 the calculation, you're also changing the underlying way the calculation is done. Today's number and its relationship to last year's number is no longer relevant because you change the backside of the calculation. And so now we have this really expensive stuff that's actually expensive because it's not direct inflation. It's inflation coupled by a supply squeeze. At a time when we don't make anything in America anymore, and we have no plan to do so, and we're creating an enemy out of the people that we get most of the stuff from. That can't, that can't be bad, right? That's got to be okay. It'll be all all right. This is fine. There's fire going everywhere. Grandma's in the rocking chair. This is fine. It'll be okay. We've been through this before. No, we haven't. We are going through it, and we've been going through it for 40 years, and it actually hasn't gotten any better. It's only gotten worse. It's only gotten worse. The person today with the same job from 40 years ago has less. Same job, same age, same talent, same work ethic has less. And it's not changing anytime soon. And real estate is about, we already talked about what's going to happen with it, but I want you to understand what's really going to happen is a giant wealth transfer again. A giant wealth transfer again. The wealthiest people in the world are about to buy all that property. It's going to be cheap again. Then they're going to sell it or rent it back to you. A lot of you, your kids are never going to own a home. Not because they don't want to. They might be convinced they don't want to. You'll own nothing and be happy. They won't have the means to do it unless you help them. So let's talk about what did I get wrong in all of this compared to 2011, 2012? Not much. And I admit when I'm wrong. The biggest thing that I got wrong, and if you go back and listen, I think, and you look at where we're at today, you'll agree I was far too naive as to the cause. I, I, I did say back then that there was a lot of this was by design, but I also still believe that there was a lot of it that wasn't, that it was inevitable, that they really were trying. There were some bad guys and there were some not so bad guys, not good guys, but not so bad guys. And I think they're all scum. I think they all know what they're doing. And the whole, well, it's, it's inevitable or whatever. That's just how they rationalize the bullshit. But as far as the mechanics and the net result, I think we got exactly what I said we would get. And I also said this. Who, if anybody out there in the live stream, if you remember me saying this, 2015, 2014, 2016, all through that time, the decade from 2020 to 2030 would be the, dec- the single biggest decade of technological development and economic flux that any living human being had ever seen that it would be comparable to everything that happened between 1850 and 1900 condensed down to 10 years. Does anybody remember me saying like that exact thing seven, eight, nine years ago or more? That exact thing. I remember when we did the history series that we did where, where Alex Shrug would do the year that was the episode. And when he hit 1900, he talked about how a person who was born in 1850 scarcely recognized the place that they were in by 1900 with all of the economic development. Yeah, Brian Tucker says he remembers. Homestead Glamour Girl says, yup. 
I said that. And what do you see now? Is that not what's happening? Like, there's good news and bad news. Like, what we talked about yesterday, Galt's Gulch in plain sight, what's being done at the economic level with things like Bitcoin and a lightning network and value for value and how that can expand and creating relationships that are economic, but they're unstoppable and they don't really exist. I mean, think about this. Think about how when I had Guy Swan and, uh, and Brian Harrington on, Brian was like, well, the most you can make from an entity before you have to pay taxes is $600. So if you make less than $600, you don't have to do a W-2. But think about a thing like Fountain. If you have a, co- a podcast on Fountain and you make $10,000 off of Fountain, how much money did Fountain pay you? Nothing. Fountain paid you nothing. Your listeners paid you. Well, who paid you what? They don't know. I don't know. Are you going to send me a W-2, guys, that boosted me? So there's good in this, but there's an awful lot of bad. Look at the technological evolution trying to push you to eat fake meat and bugs. Look at the technological evolution that is degrading our quality of health care while still increasing its cost. Look at the AI that's being developed. Look at the surveillance state that's being developed. It's like as bad as it is, it's nothing of what it'll be in five years. They're getting better at it every day. We have already had people come out of Google and say they have AI in there that it's sentient. That's self-aware. That's freaking like freaking Terminator level shit. And I don't think it'll be Terminator in of itself, but we're going to end up subservient to technology if this continues. What can you do about it? Number one, build parallel economies like we talk about all the time. And not this pie in the sky bullshit. We're all going to get a compound someday. How many people have talked about that? And It's been 10 years and you still live where you always lived. Or if you move somewhere, you're in a better position, but you're not going to have your compound or your pet prepper group or whatever. And I know a lot of people that have pulled it off. And overall, they seem miserable to me. Like you got one guy that's in charge of everything, like a great big overlord, ogre, and everybody else is a peon, and the only reason he keeps them there is that they're peons and they're willing to be peons. And I've seen some good ones too, but in the end, they're not parallel economies. Parallel economies is we're doing our own thing, we're running our own economic system, and we don't care about yours. We have to exit at least partially their system because their system is rigged against us. If if you were playing me in one-on-one basketball, And you're like, Jack is old, he's white, he's slow, he can't jump, he's got a knee injury and an ankle injury, and the, and the, and the dude can't even see out of one eye. I got this. And they're like, okay, you play Jack, and you're like, yeah, I'll play Jack, one-on-one, 30-minute game. And then we come out, and there's a tip-off. I don't even go for the ball. You get the ball, you go hauling ass down to your, your basket, and standing down there is a couple NBA players. And they just take the ball from you, and they one grabs you by the neck, and the other one rolls the ball down the court to me. And I walk up to my basket that's four foot tall, and I drop the ball through the basket. And then I, I hand you the ball and say, let's go. How long are you going to play that game? How long are you going to play that game before you go, this isn't a game. This is rigged. I have no chance of beating Jack, even though he sucks. The game is completely rigged against me. I go, all right, all right, you're right, this isn't fair. Guys, guys, leave, 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 leave. And just before they leave, 
They hand me a stick, and they tie up your net so when you make a shot, the ball doesn't go through so it doesn't count, and I can poke your ball back out. And then they make my, my, all I got to do to make points on my end is I just got to throw the ball down the court. If it goes out the back court, I get three points for a long shot. What are you going to do? Yeah, this is bullshit. This isn't a game. This is completely, the game is rigged in the words of George Carlin. The economic game is rigged. It's not rigged that bad. It's rigged enough to make you think you have a chance and you can gain in this game. But you have to partially at least exit it so that you're building something outside of your system. Develop hard skills. The fact that we live in a society where most people can't, and I mean they can't do anything. I've hired people. They don't know what a wrench is. They don't know what a ratchet is. Like I, I remember my farmhand, Cody, the guy that put gas in a diesel truck, him. It was like the first week he was here. I'm, I'm like a, a box of tools. So I'm like, well, hand me the ratchet. He didn't know what a ratchet was. Okay, here's a ratchet. Here's a bolt. We're doing a starter motor and a tra- lawn tractor. Easy job. Two bolts. Take off the power. Put it back in. Five-minute job. He's got the ratchet. And I'm not making fun of him. It's not his fault. His dad didn't teach him. His teachers didn't teach him. It's not his fault. It's just where we're at. He's got the ratchet. And he starts taking it out. He figures out how the ratchet works. You turn it this way, and it goes back this way. Click, 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 turn. Click, 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 turn. He starts going back. There's no clicking anymore. Why? The bolt's so loose, but it's not out yet, that when he's moving the ratchet handle, there's no resistance, and the bolt's going back and forth. You have to show him, hold the socket, turn the ratchet. And then you got to stop holding the socket when you're, oh, take it off. Screw the bolt off with your fingers. It's torqued now. Push up on it. Like, he didn't know how to do Anything. Not a bad kid. Even though he put gas in my, he wasn't a bad kid. He wasn't stupid. He just didn't know. He was ignorant to how these things worked. We have a society full of this. The more you can do, the more value you have. Build hard skills. Cooking, handyman stuff, knife sharpening, guard. I don't care what. You should have 10 to 20 hard skills that are valuable to other people in your life by the time you're 20 years old. One for every year you've been alive. And at three, you're not, you don't have to have any. But in 20 years, you should be able to acquire 20 hard skills. Some people, they don't know how to use a shovel. They don't know how to use a shovel. There's actually a way to use a shovel. How to dig with a shovel. How you can throw dirt with a shovel. I remember the same kid. We're shoveling dirt. And we're like throwing it. And he's like, how do you hit the spot with the dirt you want to hit with the dirt from 15 feet away? Like it's a lever. It's like a, this kid was a tennis player. I'm like, how do you get the ball to hit where you want it on the court? Well, you just do it. Okay, well, then do that. And it took him a little bit, like a week, and he could throw dirt with a shovel. He didn't have to throw dirt with a shovel. Again, I'm not picking on him. But think of the opportunity that exists if you teach your kid these hard skills. Basic hard skills. Next, make your property productive. Now, I'm not saying everybody needs the homestead. But you need, and this is the old concept. This goes back to 08 with TSP. Home to homestead. And when I say homestead here, I don't necessarily mean you have goats and chickens and pigs and a windmill on your roof that makes energy, you know, and a 100,000 beehives or whatever. I mean something. A garden, a stack of quail in your garage, something. Our homes have become liabilities. 
they take in more than they put out and provide and the relative value that they give us. You need to treat your, your home like your slave. You treat your money like a slave and you treat your home like a slave. It has to work hard for you. So big, what you can make your home productive because you have a garden and you're growing fish and you're growing quail. You can make your home productive because you develop a side hustle and you turn one of your rooms into an office that's legitimately an office and it produces income for you, but it reduces your tax burden because you're taking a home office expense on your taxes. I don't care how, but the place you're living is an incredible asset. Treat it like one instead of a hole into which you throw money. You don't live in a boat. A boat, the best day you have as a guy that owns a boat is the day you sell it. The second best day is the day you buy it. You're on top of the world when you buy a boat, but boy, are you happy when you sell that son of a bitch. It is a floating hole into which money goes. Your house cannot be that unless you live on a houseboat, and then you better figure out how to make money with it. You can make money with a boat, have a fishing guide service, do tours, do a houseboat, rent that sucker out as an Airbnb till it pays for itself, and then live there. But you better make your home productive in some damn way. Or you have a liability that may go down exponentially in value in this next crash. But if you can make it pay for itself, it doesn't matter what its underlying value is anymore. And they plan on that value coming back. They just want to squeeze you out. Okay? That's what the system's doing. It's not that they want to crash real estate forever. That's no good for them. They're going to buy it all. Everything they crash, they buy. They want to squeeze you. The only way to avoid that is to not be in the squeeze. To, even if when everybody around you is being squeezed, you got so much going on that I don't. You got to look at it like you're holding stock and the stock value went down. I'm not. I'm not selling that shit till I'm 55, 65, 75 anyway. I don't care. It doesn't matter right now. Maybe I'll sell it to realize the loss, take the tax loss go into an equivalent investment that doesn't have the wash rule and, and, and be right back where I am. And I actually benefited from the loss, but not when you're squeezed. And he, as, as the crow flies, Homestead says he hates cockroaches. They are cockroaches. All of them are cockroaches. Your government is made up of cockroaches. The lobbyists, they're the cockroach turds. And, and the people that run the world are cockroach farmers. They farm those cockroaches. That's what they are. Next, be smart and work systems hard. Figure out how to leverage systems, how to squeeze two dimes together and get a quarter. Not by being cheap. But if there's a way that you can change the way you do business and end up profitable in doing so. And all I mean is I spent less and got the same. Do that. If there's a if there's a rebate system, learn to work it. I'll combine that with the next one I'm going to say. You know what I'm going to say. Some of you don't want to hear it. You better hold some Bitcoin. This is the thing that the new economic reality is being built on. The whole parallel system is being built on. There is the thing that some guy that's working in a closet as an office and an MIT professor are both working on making better every day. Nobody's who's working on making the dollar better. Let's not talk about policy with the dollar. Who's working on making the dollar a better currency? Who's making the dollar legacy payment system better? 
We have the boomer payment system. We have the same basic payment system since the 1950s. It's 2022. No one's working on making the payment system or the underlying dollar better. Thousands and thousands of people are making Bitcoin and its payment system and its rails better every day. You might want to hold some. So back to working the system. Get the fold card and the shit you're buying anyway, you're buying with Visa, right? Use the fold, get the card, fund the card from your bank account, your debit card, whatever. Spend the money that way. It doesn't cost you any more money. It takes a few extra seconds and get free Bitcoin and learn to work that system. Here's something I learned today about fold. Oh, I love this. Oh, I love this. So if I go to Amazon and I buy something with my fold card, I'll get like I can have a flat 1% back in Bitcoin. That's what I get. Or I can spin the wheel. And if I spin the wheel, I might end up with a quarter percent or I might end up with 2% or 5% back. And if I get extra spins, I can spin it till I get something better than 1% or I can take the 1%. Do you know what else I can do? I can buy an Amazon gift card and get 5% immediately and then still get the 1% on the spend. And I can do that up to $500 a month. So guess what I did today when my wife's like, I need to order this thing from Amazon. Hold on. I went and got a $100 gift card. They gave me a code. I stuck it in my Amazon account and I immediately got 5% back and I got my spin and I got a full 1% on it. Yay. So I got 6% back on that $100. I got $6 worth of Bitcoin. I don't care. I don't care what. I gave you a system, any system that you have that you can put, as long as I don't have to put more time into it than I could make doing something else with that time, learn to work that system. Learn to work, be slick with that system. It's, it's pretty... Pretty awesome. So Weathered Soul says, we need your spin club link. Go to thebitcoinbreakout.com and click on Bitcoin tools. And the first thing there is my fold link. And if you sign up for fold, please do that. I'll have a link in the show notes today as well for all my Bitcoin tools. But yeah, please, because I like money too. And it doesn't cost you anything. And then when you work the system, you're, you're helping me too, right? And then tell your friends about it. Teach them how to work it. Earn your fair share like I just did. How much How much better is it to spend the first $500 you're going to spend on Amazon every month, if you spend that much, to do it with the gift card option than directly purchasing with the fold card because you're double dipping? That's just working a – I don't care what system you work. Any system you have that can you can make profitable, learn to work it, learn to be smart. People spend so much time trying to figure out, like, which new gun to buy. Buy the gun that works and then work a system that's profitable, right? Figure out how to reload and make money reloading for your buddies. You got that 3D printer, figure out what can I print that my buddies will pay for instead of, like, making a Boba Fett action figure or something. That's fine to learn. But then figure out how to put that sucker to work making some money. You might find that people like really cool stuff that's not necessarily printing guns. I don't know what to print. I don't know what to do. Figure out how to work systems and how to work hustles. Next, overall, this is the basic formula going forward. Drive down the cost side of your life over time. Drive down the cost side. And you think I'm going to say increase revenue. If you can, great. Seek to increase your lifestyle quotient. How do I make my life 
have more entertainment and more quality with less expense. Not less income, less expense. I have the same income. I have less expense and higher quality. I have more net surplus money to invest in the future and to boost up my children in their future with. Because that's your choice. You continue to accept their system and think one day it'll change, one day it'll get better, one day the economy will cover. We'll have ups and downs in the economy, but this underlying thing, go look for the last 50 years. Go look from 1972 to 2022 and tell me that this exact formula hasn't been playing out perfectly for 50 years, and what do you think it's going to be? Well, man, next year is going to be different, right? You know who you are? You're Charlie Brown. Lucy's holding that football for you again. You're fixing to go fly on your ass in the air and lay it flat on your back if you keep playing their game their way. No. Cut it off at the source. Stop it. Invest in you. Invest in your property. Invest in your homestead. Invest in your future. Invest in your children and their future. Invest in your grandchildren and their future. Develop yourself. Educate yourself. Do everything you can to give yourself and your family an absolute unfair advantage. Take fair and throw it out the window. Kids are playing baseball. That's where fair goes. That's fair. That's where we worry about what's fair. You're really playing one-on-one basketball with your buddy. You guys want to be fair with each other. When it comes to making your way in life, F fair. Screw Fair. There is no fair because you don't have a fair shake. So give yourself an unfair advantage in every single way that you can. Figure out everything you want. Design paths, multiple paths to get to each one of those things. Determine the one that you can do first or the one that will do the most for you once it's done. That's how you're going to make your, what am I, I got all these things I want to do. Well, if I get this one, I can get this one done in two months. Well, if everything else is longer than that, maybe you should do that. Except this one will take six. But if I do that, it's going to pay me a dividend for the rest of my life. I'm doing that one. That's the one I'm putting my time and effort into. And then I'll do the one for two months and I'll figure out another one. You have to start treating your life seriously and like a game at the same time. Because what do you do with a game? You try to win. You try to win. And the last thing I'll say about that, and I'm not talking about hurting people or stealing from people, but all of this fair shit, my good buddy David has a saying, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. Cheating doesn't necessarily mean at somebody else's expense. It means I see your rule. That's an interesting rule. Can I break it? Can I bend it? Can I manipulate it to my advantage? It's the tax code, guys. It's not really cheating, but people think it's cheating because all that cheating has become in our mind is to think outside of the, the box. Then you're cheating. People think, I, I remember people legitimately telling me when I became successful with my podcast that I cheated because I didn't go to broadcasting school. That's what I'm talking about. Remember that tax code, guys. It's as big as two 1980s phone books from like a major metropolitan area like Jacksonville, Florida. A little thin-ass bit of it says what you have to do. The rest of it says 
how you get out of doing it. They wrote it for themselves. You use it for yourself. And do that everywhere. That's your formula. Life isn't fair, Joe Tippett here says. Life isn't fair. It's not supposed to be. Life is hard. But it also does have rules. Rules and fair are not necessarily the same thing. This is the matrix. And the agents and the programmers and all, they put rules in it to their own game. But those rules affect them. And when you understand the rules, you can manipulate them. You can make your life better. Hope that makes a lot of sense. Guys, if you enjoyed today's show and you want to help me out, remember one of the ways to do that. Do your online shopping starting at tspaz.com and use the fold card when you buy stuff and get cash back and use the gift card thing I gave you to get more cash back. Today's item of the day is the same one it's been all week long, basically. The Lowry Season Pepper, I won't say anything more about it. You can look it up on the website, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Just scroll down, you see it. It's just really good stuff, and so I'll have new stuff for you next week. But uh, there's been so much of that being bought, you know. Why change it? I know you guys are enjoying I've got a lot of feedback already. You're right. It is better than I thought it should be. Um, but you can always help me out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. And remember, this weekend, the troll sale for MSB. So MSB is a way to leverage your position. You give me 30 bucks a year, and I give you discounts that are worth hundreds of dollars a year, and you use them. And then you profit – and I profit at the same time. So you can get MSB right now. That's a member support brigade for 30 bucks a year. It locks in as long as you stay a member and don't cancel your account and come back later and say you didn't do it when I know you did. Uh, and the discount code is troll and it expires Sunday, 12 o'clock midnight central standard time. And if the dog eats your discount code after that, the sale is gone. Guys, I hope you have a great weekend. I enjoyed doing this show, even though it was kind of some dark parts to it here and there. We are winning, but we're not winning as a group. We all have the ability to win for ourselves. And the more of us that win, the more the larger the group of winners is. But it's not going to magically shift. Overall, the vast majority of people are not ready to hear what I told you today. They wouldn't possibly believe that a guy that never went to college could understand this stuff better than the person on the TV with a talking head. I don't understand it better. That's what you need to understand. They know what I told you. I'm just honest about it. I'm not paid to format the result. Because this is what I'll leave you with today. I know how to do it. Back when I was in sales... I was running a $500 million territory, $500 million territory. And I would have to go once a year before the board of directors. And I would have to talk about my sales territory and all my employees and my distributors and everything like that. And I would do a PowerPoint presentation. And you know what? Every graph that came out of Excel that showed forecast and actual growth and margin and every graph made me look good. Part of it was because overall, it was pretty good. I was the top sales VP in the company, in the world. But you know what? It made me look better than everything was. Do you know why? Because you can manipulate data. You can make it say almost anything you want. If the, the news was bad, even if I couldn't make it look good, 
I could make it look not that bad. And if the good the news was good at all, I could make it look great. And every single person in that room that I gave that presentation to, at one time in their career was me, they did the same thing and they knew it and they still sat there like this. Yeah. Yeah. You know why? Because they could take that and they could wrap it in their prospectus because it was a public company and they could make it look good and they could sell more stock. And that's all they gave two shits about. Every single one of those people on TV, I don't care if they're Democrats or Republicans, I don't care if they're on MSNBC, CBS or Fox News or whatever else, every one of these people with, with freaking economists after their name and MIT after their name and Stanford, every single one of them is doing that and the person that paid them to be there told them what they wanted it to look like. I'm not smarter than them. I just, I owe nobody any allegiance except you. And I just tell you the truth. And even when I'm wrong, I say I got this one wrong. Here's why I think I got it wrong. I have the humility to do that. This I'm not wrong about. Go back. Look at Fat Jack in 2012 in that video. Listen to that video. It's about 26 minutes long. And tell me any of this is not what's played out. It's up to you now. Enjoy your weekend. Make the most of it. Find a system. Work the shit out of it. Get that side hustle. Build those skills. Build income in your life. Cut that outflow. Make your life better. Make your kids' life better. Start thinking about investing in the future to the, to the, to the intent that your great, great, great grandchild that you never, ever will know their name. You'll be long gone before they're ever conceived or thought of. Start building a future in spite of all this bad, you know their life will be at least a little bit better because of you. Take care. Have a great weekend. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house. American way Dollar down A dollar a month And you never have to pay There's a better Way to do this Let me show you A better way Yeah.